Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Conquer the Gauntlet Pro and Strength and Speed owner, Evan Preparis. I'm flying solo for this episode. This is another Q&A episode. The other exciting part is this is our 100th episode, so that's kind of a big milestone. Uh, thanks to all of you for sticking with us, and please continue to like and share and spread the podcast around so we can continue, so we can keep producing episodes for you. So I originally planned to do a Q&A episode because I was supposed to be in India this weekend. So if you follow my personal Facebook page, in strength and speed, you may have seen the announcement that I was supposed to go to Hannibal Race in India, in Goa specifically, the western part of India. Long story short, um, Tuesday night, I'm supposed to fly out Wednesday afternoon. Tuesday night, I'm packing, and I get a text message from the race owner who said the cus- the obstacles are stuck at customs. So they could not get the obstacles for the Hannibal Race through customs in India and onto the course in time and set up in time for the event. So they ended up having to cancel it last minute, which was truly unfortunate because the amount of time, effort, and energy that goes into putting on an obstacle course race, as many of you know, is just absolutely enormous. And to put all this time and effort and marketing all this stuff into it and then have to cancel it last minute was really heartbreaking, uh, specifically for the race themselves. Now, I personally was a little disappointed, but you know, I'm, I'm close friends with the owners of the company Hannibal Race. So, you know, when I went back to work the next day, people were like, oh, I'm so sorry, that sucks, blah, 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 And honestly, the worst I felt was for Amin Dib, who we've had on the podcast before. He's the Hannibal Race owner and his crew, who uh, we're friends with, me and Brenna. And I just felt so bad that they had to cancel their race last minute. And this is coming from a guy, uh, Amin I'm talking about, who's put on races in Lebanon, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, right? So multiple countries throughout the Middle East. Um, so if he couldn't put it on in India... Obviously, the challenges were insurmountable uh, because he's made races happen pretty much everywhere. So, truly heartbreaking to hear. So, I'm sorry I'm not going to be able to provide you coverage from India. Uh, That race is canceled, so it won't be going on. But uh, looking forward to more races in the future. You know, for me, there'll be plenty more races and more international trips that we'll be bringing you coverage of. All right, let's get to the Q&A portion of this episode. So, I've asked followers of Facebook to provide me a bunch of questions and I'm going to run through them. Some of them are, most of them are obstacle course related and uh, specifically to training and preparing and racing. Uh, A couple of weird ones in there like Christina's one about aliens. So I think it'll be an entertaining episode. Stick around. We're going to basically just go from the top and just start running through them. So I'll start out with Seth Townsend. He's one of the KCOCR guys. I train with him a couple times on the weekends, occasionally. Uh, He likes to focus on Spartan races. He specifically asked, having successful negative split times versus starting out too hard without burning out too early. Is this something that is all training or just how someone's body works? In most cases for me, going out hard was still faster than friends who picked up their pace halfway through. With most obstacles close to the end of the race, what strategy do you have to be more successful? So this is kind of a complicated question for OCR. For road running, it's pretty easy. Basically, you start off at your pace, and you stay with that pace, and then as you get to the end of the race, you basically just start pouring everything out into the tank as hard as you can. And I figure out what pace to run for a road race based off previous PRs. So whatever my previous PR is, that's the pace I start out with, and then I try to negative split the second half of the race. So that's pretty easy. With obstacle course racing, it's a little more difficult for two reasons. One, because often the trails narrow, so a lot of times it'll be a wide start and then it quickly goes into single track or close to single track. And two, the obstacles increase in density towards the end of the race. As a course designer, they set up most of the obstacles for the second half of the race to avoid backups to avoid lines. So that makes it a little tricky to actually negative split in an obstacle course race. However, you shouldn't go running out of the gate as hard as you can. It should be, I would describe it as comfortably hard at the beginning and then as you get closer to the race as you get closer to the end of the race you keep increasing the amount of effort and intensity you're putting in i don't think it's the way some people's bodies works i think it's a product of training so if you consistently train with 
pushing yourself towards the end of a workout, your body will get a little bit more used to that. And two, it's about holding back slightly at the beginning of the race. You know, you can't put everything out there right away. You got to hold back a little because as you get closer to the race, your body's going to be fatigued, which means it's going to be harder. There's also a psychological factor. The farther you are towards the front of the race, a lot of times the deeper you can dig or the front of your wave, whatever you're starting at. So, and, and likewise, if you end up losing sight of the leaders, a lot of times that can be psychologically um, damaging and it makes it harder to come back and win or come back and get the position you want to be in. So it's kind of a hard question to answer. A lot of it's just a product of experience. You know, going out and figuring out, especially if you race with the same cr- crowd a lot, figuring out who you normally finish around and maybe starting off closer to their pace and then kind of pushing it towards the second half of the race. As far as strategies to make yourself a better in the second half of the race, you know, you can practice workouts where you actually pick up the pace as you run. So, you know, on your first mile, you run pace X, and then maybe the next mile you run pace X minus 10 seconds, and then next mile pace X minus 20 seconds, and then minus 30 seconds. So it gets your body used to pushing harder as you get closer to the end of your workout. If we're talking ultra OCR, which I actually have negative split or even split, in some of the toughest mutter cases, that's really about holding back a lot at the beginning of the race. You know, with these 8 and 12 hour races and even 24 hours, you should never feel like you're running hard per se. It should be comfortable for the majority of the race. And then the second half of the race, that's when it starts getting uncomfortable. But your your pace actually hasn't really picked up much, if at all. It's just becoming your body's just so fatigued that you're going to have to, feels like you're pushing hard, but you're actually just pushing hard just to maintain the pace you've been holding for the last couple hours. So hopefully that helps, Seth. We're going to move on to another question. This one's from Lucas Fonensteel, one of the founders of KCOCR. He asked me, is the OCR industry declining? Do you see all OCR companies out of business in 10 years? If not, what will it take for OCR to survive? I think the OCR industry is normalizing. So in the beginning, you obviously have a large burst of events, a lot of them popping up because they think, oh, if I just build an event, I'll make money, and that's that's that. And I can, you know, grab some cash real quick and do it for a couple years and then maybe get out. So I think you're starting to see a little more of leveling in the industry. To be fair, I have not looked at the hard numbers. I think if someone's really scientific minded and wants to spend the time to actually look at how many participants we have in each race, I think you could get a better idea. But I think you're seeing a more normalization where, you know, I think I'm sure there was a huge up spike in the beginning. And as people find what they like and what they don't like and the brands they like and things like that, you'll see little more normalization. I'll use Conquer the Gauntlet as an example. 2012, they started out with two races. They kept increasing races every year. 2000, was it 16? They had, or was it 17? They had nine races spread out throughout the country. And 2018 and 2019, they dropped back down to six. So we saw that, you see a spike, and then they've normalized that six. Uh, We'll see where they go from here, if they're going to expand again, or just kind of hold where they're at. I know when you move to a new city and try to put on a new event, it is a large investment, especially in marketing up front, because you don't have all those return customers from the previous year. So you're having to reach a new crowd. And honestly, the hardcore OCR crowd, like the people who listen to this podcast, the people who follow Mudrun Guide, don't make up a huge chunk of the industry. I would guess, this is my estimation, they probably make about 10%. And if you don't believe me, Go to a race and ask people if they've heard of Mud Run Guide or if they even heard the acronym OCR, and I think you're going to get a lot of no's I don't know, or I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see all the OCR companies out of business in 10 years. I think they'll continue to go on. I think some of them will drop away and some of them will stay. And like I said, there'll be a normalization. I think a lot of the local ones will continue to stick around, and then you'll have one kind of big national leader, which at this point I'd say is looking to be Spartan as far as at least the competitive scene. And what does it take for OCR companies to survive? Again, I'm not 100% on the backside, but I have, a, you know, I'd say one foot in the backside of the industry and one foot in front of the industry as far as I'm that I'm actually out there racing. It's just like any other business. It's a matter of minimizing costs and maximizing profit. I think we've seen a lot of companies that start getting big. They, they start getting a lot of this momentum, and they assume that profit is going to carry over year after year. So they keep hiring bigger staff so they can handle more people. And then the more... You know, the longer you've had the same people on staff, the higher you typically have to pay them because they want to increase and raise. So it can actually get more expensive. So they really got to be careful and pick and choose and where they want to spend money and where they want to uh, cut back on costs. 
again, to use Conquer the Gauntlet as an example, because I have a little more backside on them, their permanent party staff is very, very small. Essentially, it's the three owners. Everyone else that works there is seasonal work that they bring on just for race season, or they bring on for build crew for a specific short amount of time. They pay them, and then that's it. So that's how they're specifically doing it to maintain a presence in the industry versus someone like Tough Motor or Spartan, which I'm assuming has a large number of full-time employees that work year-round. Anyway, bottom line, I think OCR is here to stay, maybe not in the way we see it currently now. You know, if you read my book, Ultimate OCR Bucket List, it lists a lot of brands in there that are no longer around. So I think as a couple more years pass, we'll get back to we'll get to our what our quote normal is for the future, and I think that's what it'll be uh, for the time being. With a lot of the local events, there's also a big difference between not making money and not making enough money to make it worth your time. Like you can make money, but you know, let's say you spend all this time producing this event and you make a thousand dollars. You know, that might you're still making money, but that might not be worth your time and effort to continue the race series. You know, a lot of us that are hardcore fans of OCR, if if you come from that community, that might be worth your time and effort because you have your own race and you. You're enjoying it, and you're enjoying the experience and the athletes and stuff like that. But if you're in it for purely for business reasons, that's probably not going to meet your needs. So I think it's here to stay. I'm obviously investing in the sport with the books and my website and all that stuff. So, yeah, I'll still be here. Jonathan White also has a similar question. He has, where do you want OCR to go in the future? I already talked about where I think it's going to go, where I want it to go. I like that there's a little bit of everything for everybody. I would love to see a return of a TMX-like event. I'm not saying TMX necessarily, but something that's a little more on the strength side and a little less on the speed side to kind of bring in that variety. And I would love to see a return to televised races. Back in 2017, I think it was the biggest year we've had in OCR for televised races. They had Toughest Mudder, you had the National Series, you had TMX, you had Battlefrog League Championships, you had Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge, and then if we want to throw Ninja Warrior into the mix, we can add them in there as short course OCR, and then even OCR-inspired TV shows like Broken Skull Challenge. I would love to see a return to some more of those shows and that coverage. I think when you get TV coverage, that brings a lot more money into the sport, which is going to benefit the athletes, which is going to benefit the open way of athletes too, because the more money coming into the sport, the more... Uh, industries can invest in their obstacles and the you know with it appearing on tv they'll want bigger and more spectacular obstacles so that's kind of where i hope it goes but i like the variety it has even though i'm an ultra distance guy and that's the races that excite me and the ones that i'm going to travel for and compete in i do like the fact that there's a little bit for everyone here i was super sad to see warrior dash go away even though i don't think their races were particularly good but it was the brand that pulled me into the industry and I think like so many other athletes, it pulled a lot of people into the industry. My big concern with them disappearing is, are we going to lose some of that initial entry point for some people? And the answer is, I don't know. It, we're we're going to have to wait and see. Or maybe Rugged Maniac will fill that role. Or maybe the local OCR that's in your hometown, you know, whether it be like an Indian Mud Run or a Black Swamp Dash or a Noob Sanity up in Binghamton, New York. Maybe one of those will replace Warrior Dash and pulling those people into the initial entry. I am curious in a couple of years to hear when they're interviewing elites, you know, like what what race pulled you in into the sport initially. So we'll see what happens in the future. Jonathan White also asked a question, safety of obstacles. What's the limit of not worth it? I'm a big believer in personal accountability. I would say for me personally, if the race brand is willing to put an obstacle out on the course, then it is above it's safe enough for me. Like if someone who built it is like, this is safe, then I'm like, I concur with you and I will accept whatever risk you have. Uh, obviously, if an obstacle falls apart, like the they're literally boards are breaking and pieces are falling off and the obstacle collapse, which has happened in the past, uh, I believe to Warrior Dash, which is no longer around, obviously then that is that is unsafe and that is their fault. But anything else is really up to you. You know, almost any obstacle can become unsafe without the proper physical training and uh, movement. I mean, I have friends who've heard of, who've been at races where someone jumped, jumped over the four foot start wall at the beginning of some races and broke their leg, right? And I mean, that's completely preposterous. It's a, it's a four foot wall. If, you know, that, for, for that guy, that obstacle was quote unquote unsafe. 
we do sign waivers in this sport, and I'm not saying the that means the race brand has the right to do whatever to you and torture you, but I think the common sense approach that most race brands have exceeds where I think the the safety threshold is. You know, I I think whatever they're putting out there is going to be safe, especially especially if you're a competitive athlete or you're someone who listens to this podcast. Chances are you're you, if you're not competitive, you you want to be competitive, so you're you're putting in the time and training. Honestly, the most dangerous, quote-unquote, dangerous obstacles are typically people who have been drinking the night before or drinking that morning. Maybe they have some other things in their system, and it's a hot day, and they did not properly physically prepare. And just the heat or their inability to swim is typically what makes it dangerous versus the actual obstacle themselves. Uh, the only other times obstacles, I think, become dangerous are when people stop following the rules and they start doing crazy things like trying to walk across the top of monkey bars or they're stepping on an obstacle when there's someone else actually underneath the obstacle things like that again for me personally if the race industry is going to put an obstacle in front of me i'm going to do it and i'm going to feel pretty safe i've never seen anything that i would consider dangerous to the point where i wouldn't do it i have seen things that i would say the masses probably should be really careful on or maybe take the penalty on there used to be an obstacle in Shell Hell, so the 24-hour permanent venue up in Benson, Vermont. That was like a cliffhanger. So it, you know, it basically went. It was a wall with a ledge, so you actually went back. And during the 24-hour race, I'm by myself in the woods climbing over that thing. And essentially, I'm holding on with weakened grip strength. And my the thing pointing at the ground is my head. So that's probably the most uncomfortable I've ever felt on an obstacle, just because. When you're in an ultra OCR, sometimes your grip goes from 100% down to zero without you having much time to react. Robert Bondoni, Bondoni uh, asked, I assume you travel a lot. What strategies do you typically use to keep your eating in check while you're away from home? So I do travel a lot, not only for racing, but also for work. And the strategy I have to keep my eating in check for when I'm traveling for work, I'm typically staying in a hotel for several weeks at a time. And for that, that's actually pretty easy. I don't buy junk food at all. And if it's not in my hotel room, then it becomes a lot harder to eat. eat. So you can use a similar strategy at home. Like if you don't physically buy it, then it's a lot harder to eat it because it's not readily available. And for that, I recommend eating right before you go to the grocery store. So when you show up at the grocery store, you're not starving and you can more easily make better food choices. It's a lot easier to make those food choices a single time when you're in the grocery store versus daily when you come home and there's something delicious like fudge-covered Oreos or something like that in your cabinet that's staring at you every day. While actually on the road, there are certain food places that I like to go to because they have healthier options. Uh, a lot of them are chains, and I know what I'm going to get there. Like Panera, Panera Bread has some healthy options, some salads and some stuff like that. Uh, Chipotle, brown rice and chicken, guacamole, I like that. And then Starbucks has... Uh, egg white bites that I consume in large quantities. So those are my go-to. And then when I go to a new city, we try to just generally eat healthy just because that's the food I prefer. If you're talking while traveling between venues and like while actually driving, that you have two options. One is prepare your food ahead of time. So my wife often brings a snack bag with us and basically pack it with healthy things, nuts, beef jerky, things like that. You can even bring a cooler with pre-cooked food and your meals are prepped in there. I used to do that when I was bodybuilding. So that was a necessity just because you lack the clean foods that are available from stores. If I'm starving and I'm on the road and all that's around is a gas station, I typically eat nuts, beef jerky, or some brands have protein shakes. Like I think Muscle Milk has a protein shake that's pretty low in sugar. It's like three grams or something. So those are my kind of go-to options for going into a gas station and grabbing some food to go. It's just a matter of finding what healthy foods you enjoy that are readily available, like at ch chains, and using that as your primary meals and then you know eating out at other places where you generally try to eat healthy. You're also traveling, and if you're in a new city, I think it's okay to obviously loosen up the reins a little bit and you know try something new. After Conquer the Golden Continuum, me, my wife, and my daughter went and got ice cream, right? So felt did not feel guilty about that at all because I spent five hours running around Conquer the Gauntlet. But, and it was good recovery, right? It's got high in sugar, fat, and protein in there. 
I may not be the best ratio there, but you know, at that point, my body was just screaming for anything. Like with anything, building habits is also a key part. So once you stop accepting certain unhealthy items as food, then you stop desiring them, right? Like when I first started eating healthy, I used to crave French fries all the time, you know. And eventually, I was like, well, there's just there's not much good stuff in French fries, so I just kind of stopped eating them. And after I'd stopped eating them for a couple of months, I had less of a desire for them. And then I'm like, all right. I just don't eat I don't eat fried pretty much anything anymore. So if it's fried, I typically don't consider it food. Just like when I go to the grocery store, I consider a large section of the grocery store not food. It's just you know, like Doritos are to me are not food. It's I might as well eat cardboard in my opinion. You know, it's just if you stop viewing it as a as an option, then to me it you know, it's it makes it easier to make the choice. That being said, I would also I do keep a couple items on my like cheat meal, um, less healthy food option list that I have occasionally like after a big race. All right, we're going to keep moving, burning through these questions, trying to get through all of them in one podcast. So AC Hell asked, two days before a race, essentially what do you do, recover, rest, or work out? And then what do you do two days after the race? Same question. So I'm a big believer in taking two complete rest days before an important race. That's two days of not working out at all. Some people say their legs feel sluggish after that. I disagree. I think when when you're properly trained and you're giving yourself a taper and you take those two days, I think you're going to perform better. I know personally, after a really hard workout one day, the next day my workout is always suffers. And then if I take a rest day and then work out again the next day, that one day of rest makes me feel rejuvenated. And two days, the same logic applies, especially with... Most OCRs, you're going to have to travel, and that's stressful in itself. So you want to limit the physical stress because you already have the emotional stress of traveling, and a lot of times you're cramped in a car or cramped in a airplane seat, so you're not getting a whole lot of movement there anyway. So two days before the race, rest. If you want to do some other recovery modalities, uh, you know, on the high end, we're talking Normatec recovery boots or Compex electrical muscle stimulator, kind of help circulate the blood. You can do that. On the cheaper end, but also requires some time-intensive stuff, you can take an ice bath. And then on the cheap end, but also very easy to do, you can do a hot cold shower. So one minute of cold water, as cold as the water will go, and then two minutes of warm water. Repeat that about three times. It's going to constrict and dilate your blood vessels, basically help circulate your blood. Typically when I do that, I just do the lower half of my body because that's primarily what I'm going to be using. So I just do it on the legs and then switch to the hot water for my whole body, and then back to the freezing water for just my legs. Two days after a race, it really depends on what I have coming up next. So example, I did Conquer the Gauntlet Continuum recently. Day after, complete rest day, nothing else. Actually, I took two more complete. I took Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday off uh, because I had to do a two-mile run for work on Wednesday. So that was my routine there and I know I was going to be racing again the following weekend so I, I took th- actually Thursday and Friday off now if I hadn't been racing the weekend after I would have taken Monday off or Sunday off I would have taken off Monday I probably would go do some strength training and then kind of ease back into my normal routine in the next couple of days a lot of it's how you feel there's just so many variables there's no kind of one size fits all so really pay attention to your body if you're feeling if you go to back to working out and you're feeling sluggish you know, maybe you need to take an extra rest day uh, tomorrow, or maybe next time after your race, you take an extra rest day ahead of time. When you get to the huge races like 12-hour Toughest Mudders, Ultra Beast, World's Toughest Mudder, I highly encourage taking extra rest days there. You'll find that taking the extra rest days up front allows you to bounce back quicker and train again harder sooner versus if you're like, all right, I'm just going to, I know I'm feeling crappy, I'm just going to try to train through this anyway. Um, after those huge stresses on your system, I would definitely take a couple extra rest days and then ease back into the workouts, right? There's no need to go from an ultra beast on Saturday to a sprint workout on Tuesday, you know, go for an easy run or maybe just cycling, just kind of get the blood flowing, loosen up the legs and, uh, get the motivation back to start training again with the recovery modalities. You can throw those into if you want. So Normatec boots, complex recovery, ice baths, hot, cold shower, things like that get a massage, all those are options for helping speed recovery. And then not only on the physical sense, but also mentally, right? Like after a massage, you feel mentally relaxed 
and you feel capable of going back out there. Maybe not that night because you're still relaxed, but the next day you feel relaxed and good enough to start training again. Another one of AC Hale's questions, how do you balance hours training with time with your wife and kids? And then Damien Shemo followed it up with, and a full-time job. I was going to ask the same question. Say so this question is all about finding priorities and figuring out what you want in life. You know, personally, I don't watch a lot of TV, so I prioritize that really low. In fact, the only TV I've pretty much watched all year was American Ninja Warrior. So that takes away a lot of wasted time that I think other people are spending time doing. I also have a very understanding wife and someone who is used to the opposite extreme. So I started dating my wife at the end of college. For the first 10 years of dating slash marriage together, I did not sleep in the same bed or room as her for 10... I'm sorry. At the first 10 years, two-thirds of the time, I was in a different place. So whether that was training or deployments or on temporary duty or you know visiting someplace else. So we spent a lot of time apart in those first 10 years. I think that set our baseline of what a lot of time together is at a different level. So me going out for a run for two hours I think is less of a big deal because in the past she was used to not seeing me for months at a time, right? Like I've, I've done a 12-month deployment where I didn't see her. I've done a 14-month deployment where I saw her only on mid-tour leave. And I've done six-month deployments where I didn't see her at all and training events that were months long. So we're used to being apart. So I think she is a little more understanding with that. To be honest, I'm also the... How do I say this? She Part of it, she knew what she was getting into. When, I first, when we first started dating, I was like... I'm going to go to the I'm going to the military and I'm going to be deployed a lot and I'm going to training a lot so I'm not going to be around. And she is very understanding about that and she's very self-sufficient. There's also a large trust factor there. If you're not spending time together, you need to trust each other. Otherwise, you start imagining what the other person is doing and obviously that can go downhill really quickly. For the little kids, my wife, I would say takes the lead in taking care of the very young our very young son right now Uh, so she does a lot of the legwork there uh, which allows me to train and race and you know go on all these other trips and produce podcasts and write articles all the stuff so she does a lot of that work Um, I still help out where I can obviously but you know to downplay my wife's contribution to that would be absolutely false I also try to make when I am around something special so you know, if I'm not if I'm around if I'm around because I'm not working or I'm not working out, I try to give my attention to my daughter completely. And that's I feel like sometimes I do th- I I do that better in theory than in practice, but that's my intent. So, you know, especially after our son was born, I didn't want my daughter to feel slighted, so I took her out to Dave and Buster's one day and the next week I took her out to a different place and then you know, we did some daddy-daughter time where 100% of the emphasis was on her, you know, made sure to put my phone away. I do think I waste a lot of time on my phone just messing around Facebook, so I'd like to personally work on cutting that down because I think there's wasted time there that I can better use in other activities. But yeah, it's a challenge. So I would say for you personally, you know, prioritize what you want in life. Prioritize what's important and what doesn't need to be around. If you want to be super competitive, then you're going to have to push training higher up on the priority list. And you may have to sacrifice some family time. If you just want to have be in good shape and have fun on the course, then I would put training a little bit lower and you know put a little higher priority towards family and uh, personal time, relaxation time, watching TV, stuff like that. In my actual schedule, when I'm in full training mode, I would say is I get up early, go for my run, go right to work, spend all day at work, and then when I come back in the evening. I pick up my daughter and bring her to the gym where they have a kid's play area. So she gets to play while I go to the gym. And we get a little bit of daddy-daughter time beforehand, a little bit of daddy-daughter time afterwards. And then I come home, spend the evening with my wife and my son and stuff like that. So trying to squeeze it in, make it work. And honestly, the the bring her to the gym and letting her play around also gets some of that energy out. So when she comes home, um, she's a little more tired and a little more manageable than if she... If I come home, you know, after a 10-mile run, she's like, let's run around the house in circles. It's like, ah, I'm a little tired right now. So 
I do things like that. And then for OCR, for the actual trips, I make it worthwhile for the event. So a lot of times, you know, go down Friday, race Saturday, and I typically don't drive back Saturday evening. I typically stay Saturday night and Saturday afternoon, evening, we try to do something family oriented with the kids and then the same thing Sunday. So example, went to Little Rock last year. On the way back from Little Rock, we stopped in Branson, Missouri and spent the day there uh, with my daughter before we're actually driving back home so she could see the butterflies. They have like a nice butterfly conservatory there and stuff like that. Philip Andrew, the beard from Ohio, wants to know, does anyone actually read the waiver? And the answer is no. I don't know. I've never read a waiver, even a couple of sentences of it. I just signed them. So don't know what it says. Don't care. Again, I point this back to personal accountability and, you know, don't do something that's above your capability level. Like if I can't swim, I'm not going to jump in the water as Tough Mudder MC Sean Carvel likes to say. If you can't swim, don't get in the water, which he repeats three times, which you need to say because people have trouble following that advice. Daniel Leonard Boats, if you could bring back one OCR series from the dead, what would it be? And he says, if it's Battlefrog, then name two and why. So one OCR series back from the dead, it's got to be Battlefrog. I mean, the obstacles were super fun. They're hard. Uh, it was the first brand that really pushed the mandatory obstacle completion, which was awesome to see. And then they also had BFX, which is one of my favorite events. So again, multi-lap, endurance, cool prizes. They had the paddle and then the trident the year after. Uh, they had great cash prizes. They paid out deep. They were just amazing. They just spent more money than they were taking in, and it made them close early, which is unfortunate. So since I said Battlefrog, I'll name a different brand as the one I'd want to bring back from the dead. And this one is Superhero Scramble. So I actually don't know that much about Superhero Scramble. They were just around before I got into OCR. Like when I first got into OCR, their website was still up. Uh, but they didn't have any races posted because uh, they'd been out of business for about a year. And I'd just be curious to see what their events were like and, you know, just basically a little bit more about them. I just don't know that much about them. So you had to bring back Superhero Scramble. And there are plenty of other good events uh, that have gone out of business since then. But I just don't – I've raced them, so I've experienced them. I just personally have not done Superhero Scramble. Uh, for the benefit of the industry, I would – I honestly, I'd probably bring back Warrior Dash because like I talked about earlier, I'm a little concerned that you're losing some of the initial draw of people into the sport uh, by getting rid of Warrior Dash. So hopefully that does not have a detrimental effect in the future. Jason Williams asks, what are your favorite pre-race and post-race stretches? Which he clearly put as a joke because I just had this conversation with him at dinner a couple nights ago. And the, the pre-race, I, the, I don't pre-race stretch. I don't, there's, there's some scientific evidence that says static stretching pre-race uh, essentially does not, is not helpful and does not reduce injury. It does not help warm you up. So some people call stretching before the race, but it's, it's warming up is what you're doing. So, you know, just basically for me, running around for a couple minutes before the race starts just to get the blood moving is what I do. If I'm doing an ultra, I do no warm-up because the first – couple of miles is the warm-up. So I don't bother wasting energy on a warm-up. I just kind of go out at a more conservative pace and work my way into my whatever pace I find comfortable. If I'm doing a short race, I do some striders warm-up. So I'll you know, run for 10 minutes or so and do a couple of you know 100 to 400 meter accelerations where I'm accelerating up to a race pace or faster than race pace, basically charging my nervous system to get used to that quick leg turnover. So when I actually start the race, it does not feel as hard as it should. It also gets the blood pumping, helps, you know, your 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 muscle is a heart. So, you know, getting that heart warmed up and helping it expand and contract to its maximum capability beforehand is going to help you and get your body used to sucking in more oxygen from your blood. All that's part of the warm-up. And for post-race, <clears throat> honestly, I, 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 don't, I don't stretch after. I know that's not the, the book answer, but I'm typically tired and I just kind of stop. Um, you should do some sort of cool down, whether that be walking instead of just laying down, uh, which I do. I do walk after a race, right? Or get into Normatec boots or Compex recovery, something like that, something to get the blood moving around. But I don't actually sit around and do static stretching 
pretty much ever. Ashley Samples wants to know, if you were stranded on an island and could only bring three training tools to prepare for an upcoming season, what would you bring? Now I'm going to assume I have like clothes and running shoes, so I'm not going to list those as options. So for three tools, one would be a long rope, because I think you could you know, practice rope climbs, which is a pretty good full body experience. You could attach it to things to practice drags. You could string it across some trees maybe and you know, essentially loop it back down on itself to create like a rig, something like that. I think that would be good kind of all around body training. I would also bring those Bowflex adjustable weights that go up to like 50. You can turn the little cranks and stuff like that just because I think they're very versatile. So you can essentially work every muscle group on your entire body with adjustable weights. You know, something like a rec bag, uh, which is great, but it only comes in one weight. You're a little more limited. The adjustable weight would allow me to make my training progressive so I could increase as I continue to improve. And then finally, I'd say the last one would probably be slackline for me. My balance has never been my strong point, and I think if you're stuck on a desert island there, having the slackline would not only be entertaining, uh, but it would be a good practice and work on that stability and balance allowing me to get better. And it, also you can make that progressive, right? I can do a short slack line. I can make a long slack line. I can work on different movements, standing on one leg, things like that. So if anyone else has any other opinions on what they would bring to the island, uh, post in the comments below. I'd be curious to see what other people's justification is for what they're bringing. I'm assuming with my running shoes and my clothes that I would have room to run, which is why I wouldn't bring something like a treadmill. Although that, you know, having the ability to run obviously is very important. And I'm assuming I have like generic nutrition stuff to survive. But yeah. Ben Rittenhouse asked, what obstacle in, o in the sport of OCR requires the most overall skill to traverse? That's a good question. I think someone's knee-jerk reaction might be Force 5 Gibbons because that's the new hotness right now in the OCR world. I think another good option might be the Platinum Rig or just rigs in general, right? Like tar Conquer the Gauntlet's Tarzan Swings. The thing is with rigs, you can make them super easy, essentially all rings, or you can make them super complicated like nunchucks and low bars and stuff like that. So I think there's just a lot of variability in there. So I, I want to say rigs because I, I think that is it, but it really depends on the setup. So if we're going to go with something that's more standardized, it's kind of the same every time you see it, then I'm going to go with Pegatron. I think that's the hardest and most skill-based obstacle. You can practice for a lot of other things without the physical instrument, but for pegboard training and conquering Pegatron, I think you actually physically need to go onto a pegboard. You know, you can try to work on it by just doing pull-ups or movements on a pull-up bar. It's just not the same as hanging and, and moving those pegs sideways. So I'm going to go with Pegatron for my answer. Even though... If you've been to Conquer the Gauntlet this year or last year, you definitely encountered some rigs that are undoubtedly harder than Pegatron, as you saw the failure rate on them higher than it was at Pegatron. So rigs have the potential to be more technical and require more skill, but just, there's too much variability in there for me to give it to rigs. I also think Force 5 Gibbons, you know, we haven't seen someone really in a race necessarily push the limit. You know, the Force 5 Gibbons setup at Indian Mud Run and upcoming at City Challenge, I'm, I'm making an assumption on this one, and at NORAM, the Force 5 Gibbons were set up pretty close to each other, and it was designed for people to get past them. So, I mean, you could theoretically do Force 5 Gibbons with, like, two moves and then reach out and hit the bell. So, if they did space out the Gibbons farther, I personally would give it to that. Uh, I'm not super strong hanging from my left arm. I think there's... I've hurt my shoulder in the past, so I think there's a lot of a lot of one arm strength there that uh, people are just not used to, or I'm I'm personally not good at. <laughs> Michael Booms asks, unlimited budget, what obstacle would you build? An extremely limited budget, same question. So the extremely limited budget, I'm gonna go with a balance obstacle, whether it be slack line. If assuming I have trees to set it up at, I would go with slack line. If I didn't have trees, then the Z beam from Conquer the Gauntlet, or the one I have in my garage is actually a square. So it's three uh, two-by-fours hammered together, and then the fourth part of the square is a one-by-four. So it allows me to practice balance. So I just walk in a... A lot of times I'll walk in a C-shape and practice doing a 360 and turning around. 
or actually it's 180, excuse me, 180, turn around, walk back across the sea, and then sometimes I'll walk a complete square with that final leg being on the one-inch uh, balance portion, and I think that that helps improve my balance, which is something I've had trouble with in the past. Unlimited budget, I'm going to go with the platinum rig, right? If I, if I have an unlimited budget, I'm going to put a platinum rig someplace, my backyard, or find a place essentially, or rent a gym, or buy a gym, or something like that, and build a platinum rig, because with platinum rig, you can make the obstacle essentially endlessly versatile, so you can change out the holes and stuff like that, and you can put high bars, low bars, ropes, nets, tire, whatever you want. You can you can literally, as, as creative as you can get, you can make it. Jumping back to a previous question, I didn't choose platinum ring for the desert island because I kind of assume you'd have a limited number of holds. Um, but I guess if you could have infinite holds on the platinum rig and you could count that as quote-unquote one piece of equipment, I would change out the rope for the platinum rig. Patrick Frigalt writes, I'm wondering what the optimal thing to do in the off-season is. Should I stop running to recover fully and focus on building strength? Thanks. My recommendation for most people is to stop running for a period of time in the off-season. Take a couple of weeks off completely. For me personally, at the end of the world's toughest mudder, that's a very big stress to my system. I take anywhere from three to six weeks off where I'm not running at all, period. No running. I'm still working out during those times. I'm usually going to the gym. Maybe I'll do some spin classes or some easy cycling, something like that, but I'm not running. And there's a couple of different reasons from that. The first one, honestly, is primarily mental. I need a mental break from running. Running takes a lot of time. It's stressful. I think taking that moment to reset your mind is going to make you come back stronger and want to train harder once the actual season picks up. I'm also going to caveat that with you know taking that much time off, you want to make sure you have a proper build into your season, right? So I'd like to try to spend quote unquote four months where like I'm legitimately building my fitness level um, with little to no racing. Occasionally you'll see me race in the winter, but a lot of times those are kind of sea races or I'm, I'm using a, my, a natural down week in my training to race that weekend and it's the kind of less important. And then I, I go back to building for a couple of weeks and then a week taper and et cetera. So I do think you should take some time off. I also think it's a good time to work on your weaknesses. So personally, I work on strength a lot of times in the offseason because that's what I enjoy, and I think it's important to maintain that both for building muscle and for building bone density. If I do some strength training, it's going to help build denser bones, which is going to make me more resilient to injuries when I start running. And if you've had problems in some other obstacles in the past, whether it be bucket carry or you know, sandbag carry or rope climb or balance obstacle, whatever it is, if you're constantly running and trying to improve on those, you're constantly limiting how much improvement you can get because you're constantly tired from running. So take a moment to completely drop the running and really focus on whatever your weakness is. You know, if you're on the heavier side and you're carrying too much body fat around, I would work on eating healthier and reducing the amount of running. You'll find when you stop running as much, yes, you're burning less calories, but that lower caloric expenditure after a couple days, is it will take a time for your, your body to realize what's going on, you'll be less hungry. So you'll you'll want to eat junk food less because you're not your body's not burning all those calories and it realizes that it doesn't it doesn't need to be hungry all the time. So if you actually stop running, I find it easier to eat healthy than when I am running uh, because my body's just craving nutrients all the time. A lot of my friends that don't strength train at all and don't do obstacle courses, all they do is run. I'm using some anecdotal evidence here, but I feel like they're always battling some sort of injury. Oh, I hurt my knee. I hurt my ankle. And it's for me, I think it's because they just never take an off season ever, right? They go years without taking an off season. And I don't think that's good mentally or physically for you. You know, I think you can run through the off season once or twice and then eventually you're you're playing Russian roulette there. I think eventually you'll, it'll catch up to you and you will get an overuse injury or something like that. I've been taking off seasons for the last decade and I'm, I'd say lower, lower legs, I'm essentially injury-free. The only serious injury I've had is I tore my pec uh, a couple years ago because I tried to do a weight that I had done in the past but I hadn't done recently and uh, just got... My brain was a little bit bigger than my muscles were at the time, so ended up tearing my pec on doing a weighted dip. So if you are going to be strength training, remember that your body has may have changed from the last 
couple of months. So kind of ease back into it and approach it with caution. You'll find when you go back to running back into the your base building, back into getting ready for your season, those first couple of runs might be bad. It might be challenging, but it'll quickly come back to you. You know, especially if you've been training for a couple of years, it will come back to you very quickly. You know, and the overall benefit, the long-term benefit, which is really what this is, it's all about long-term gain. You'll find you're better in the long run than if you're constantly, you know, just running all year long, just racking up miles and uh, never giving your body time to heal. I find that all these like little nagging injuries, like, oh, my ankle feels weird or my knee feels weird. In the off season, when I stop running completely for a couple months, I find those heal. And then I can go back to a normal training cycle when I get back to in season, which is usually late December, early January. I'll start actually training for my OCR season. Brittany Martinez wants to know who takes the most amazing race pictures in OCR. Uh, your favorite OCR and why, your thoughts on what the most important training tool is for OCR. So we'll start off with the most amazing pictures. The obvious answer is my wife. She's my photographer, so she takes the most amazing pictures. Let's assume that my wife is no longer in the contest because she's my wife and I'm extremely biased for that. We'll go with my favorite OCR photographer is uh, Bobby and Victoria Ross from the Stoke Shed. So if you haven't seen the Stoke Shed, uh, go like their Facebook page. They partnered with us, the Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team, for 2019 and 2020, and they're producing marketing material for Conquer the Gauntlet. So anytime you see a video shot on the Conquer the Gauntlet website, or now the ones that look professionally edited and done on the Pro Team website, it's by Stoke Shed, which is Bobby and Victoria Ross, and their pictures are just absolutely insane. Go check out, go check out the CTG Pro Team Instagram. My Facebook profile is one of their pictures right now. Just the lighting and the crispness of their picture, they're so detailed. It is awesome. So... Uh, if you run an OCR and want a great photographers, you need to hire the Stoke Shed with Bobby and Victoria Ross. If you're into anything producing digital marketing material, you can check them out also because they do music videos, they do commercials for people. So definitely check them out. So that's that's my answer for that. Favorite OCR. I'm going to go with Conquer the Gauntlet. I think last year I could have said Tough Mudder because of World's Toughest Mudder and the Toughest Mudder series. That's kind of what I excel at, and I like the community aspect. But for me, Conquer the Gauntlet has surpassed them. Um, a couple of reasons. One, so they have the multi-lap option now, the continuum, which is what I excel in, so that's that's what I love. Um, so they have that now. The community feel to it, it's just amazing. Once you get inside the CTG family, you'll understand. It is a small series that has that big race feel. Three, the obstacles. They're challenging. They're hard. You get a feeling of accomplishment when you complete one of them. So I think their obstacles are just some of the best in the sport, hands down, period. You know, back to that family feel, after one of the last continuums, the owner, Dave Mainprize, took off my socks because I couldn't get them off. And then in this last Conquer the Gauntlet Continuum, I didn't have a pacer, and on the last lap, I'm trying to chase down first place. I'm in second at the time. And the owner, again, David Mainprize, he has more important stuff to do, like helping run the race. He starts pacing me, and he paced me for the last lap. Um, so that, again, you don't get... Like, Joe Descent is not going to go start pacing someone on a, in a Spartan race. It's just... He's got other things to worry about. So that that small race feel you're going to get at Conquer the Gauntlet where you're not going to get it in their series. And kind of jumping back to their obstacles, I like that it's mandatory completion and I like that it's hard. It means the podium can be three people you've never heard of. It can mean it could be three people who are by far not the fastest people on the field that day, but they're the most technically proficient. I like that. I think that's the way OCR should be. It's what makes it fun. It's what makes it diverse is that on any day, it's anyone's chance to win. And I know people who think I'm saying that just because I'm on their team, but no, it's not true. I mean, it is true that I am on their team, but all those things, I mean, ask anyone and they'll agree with me. It is 100% fact as far as, you know, what makes that series unique and what makes it fun. I think the other fun part is there'll also be some rough days, right? There are days when the obstacles don't go as well as I expect them to. And those lows, to me, is what makes the highs that much better. So if I have a bad day on course, which has happened, right? I've gotten stuck at obstacles. I've gone from first place to 10th place. It's the variability there that makes the race fun. 
And I've also, you know, I've won a Conquer the Gauntlet. I've won two. And I've also simply been happy just to keep my band. So Wichita last year made it across the rig. Didn't think I could. And those feelings, like, are just as good as winning to me. It's it's that sense of accomplishment that you get. And even though it was only four miles, you still get that sense of accomplishment, which I don't think you get that in a lot of other brands. Especially if you once you get good at the obstacles, it just becomes, oh, this is just another race. I'm just going to go through the motions and... We'll see where I end up. And her last question was, your thoughts on the most important training tool for OCR is? And we talked about platinum rig and rec bags and, you know, weights and stuff like that. But honestly, the most important training tool is, and again, people are going to say, of course you're going to say this, it's something that trains your mind, which is the knowledge to succeed. So I, I specifically wrote books because that is what helped me prepare for OCR the most. You can have all the fancy equipment you want, access to the best gym, but if you don't know what you're doing to properly train, build up, peak, and taper for a race, you're going to be in trouble. And honestly, I don't make huge amounts of money from writing books. I do it because I enjoy it, and I think it helps the most amount of people in the shortest amount of time possible. When I first started getting into fitness, people kept asking me questions. Oh, how do I do this? How do I do this? What do I eat? How do I train? What do I prepare for a race? And I was like, you know what? I'll just write the book, buy the book, read it. If you have any questions, then contact me afterwards. So, And that still stands to this day. So if you don't have a copy of Strength and Speed's Guide to Elite Obstacle Course Racing, is the most broad book that I've written and the best value for the, the money because it was published through a major publisher. So it allows me to keep the price of the book down as much as possible. Pick that up, read it, and then come back to me and feel free to ask me any questions. As far as I'm tracking, I've responded to every question that someone has sent me on facebook on social media so yeah read the book let me know what your questions are because it's going to vary you know that the book's a general guideline but it's going to for your specific situation it's going to vary slightly so again don't feel free yeah feel free to reach out to me all right jared renier wants to know he's got a series of questions worst ocr decision ever that one's easy it was my 48 hours of endure the gauntlet specifically doing it at the tulsa venue which is one of their hardest courses ever in the middle of the summer that's the only race I've ever, or event I've ever been in where I was like, this is a bad, bad choice. I should, like, maybe I need to rethink this ultra OCR stuff and become a short course athlete. So it was just so long, so mentally draining, and the conditions were so bad. It definitely kind of pushed me to that edge. And I mean, I had to stop at one point uh, due to the heat. So, yeah. If you want to know more about that, my book, Ultra OCR Man, covers that. Or you can go back and listen to. It was on the Link Endurance podcast. We talked about that last year. I've been right around September of 2018. Jared also wants to know, what's the closest to rhabdo slash death ever? I'm assuming he means an OCR. Conquer the Golden Continuum Wichita this year was the most dehydrated I think I've ever been because my pee was super dark afterwards. I was taking, I was sick at the time, so I was taking some cold medicine to help with that, which I think did not help the dehydration. So that, I think that's the most dehydrated I've ever been. Uh, closest to rhabdo or death, I don't know. I mean, in, in the gauntlet, I, w- I was not doing well. I mean, even my dad, who's seen me in pretty much every condition, was concerned for my health at that point. And then for cold exposure, I'll go World's Toughest Mudder 2014. It was my first World's Toughest Mudder, my first ultra OCR. And the conditions with the cold and the wind made it very, very cold. It took me weeks to get the, fing- the feeling back in my fingertips. It was also the least prepared I'd been because it was my first ultra OCR, right? So I'm still kind of experimenting to see what works and what doesn't. And just the windstorm at night was brutal. In fact, when I, we came through the pit, I expected them to stop the race, and I was shocked when they told me to go back in on course. I was like, oh, I guess, I guess we're doing this. All right, let's do it. And uh, so, yeah, that was pretty intense. He also wants to know my favorite teammate. You can pick which team. I think it means Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team or Strength and Speed. And not going to pick a favorite teammate, but I will say I take a little bit of every every one on the team, both Strength and Speed and Conquer the Gauntlet, I take a little bit of something I like about them, and I look up to that and try to emulate that. So some people, it's their you know, success at Conquer the Gauntlet, right? Like Randy Lackey, I mean, she's got like 12 gauntlets, which is insane. Some people, it's their versatility. Amy Pagic goes from Ninja Short Course and been American Ninja Warrior all the way up to World's Toughest Mudder been on the podium of OCRWC and World's Toughest. 
you know, Jared Renier himself, he's a very smart guy as far as strength and conditioning goes. So I look up to that. And he's also super strong. If you've ever seen him, his squats are very impressive. Um, same thing with, you know, uh, James McVeigh, another strength and speed guy, very strong, crushing out some huge deadlifts. So I think everyone brings something unique. And I think you can find something good in everyone that you can use to motivate yourselves. And if you look up to each little p- person in a different way and try to reach their level or surpass it, I think you'll find yourself overall at a better level uh, around. I did the same thing when I was on a special forces team. So you look at the 12 guys on your team and everyone's a little bit better at something than the other. Some people are more physically fit. Some people are better at shooting. Some people are better at driving. You know, And I tried to emulate or be as good or better than the top guy in each one of those and kind of reaching for that. You know, Even though I still fell short of maybe, well, I'm definitely not the best driver on my team. I was, I was probably middle third to bottom third. You know, the fact that I'm striving for that means I'm going to land higher than if I was just aiming to be just just not the worst. The last question he wants to know is, how many articles are on your computer waiting to be submitted? Hmm. I'd say I have about four in the Mud Run Guide actual like queue that are just sitting there, and I have to do final edits and hit before I hit submit. I would say I sent probably about 10 to Adventure, the OCR World Championship, North American OCR Championship website that I'm not sure if they're publishing or what the status is because I don't have backside visibility on that. And then I probably have about 10 sitting on my desktop at work and probably another two or three sitting on my desktop here. So yeah, I always have articles that are in various states of completion. Sometimes I use them, sometimes I'll, I don't use them at all, and sometimes they uh, they just sit there for a couple of years. So Last two questions. Brian McDonough wants to know, what's the deal with HB? As in Christina Armstrong, and I don't really have an answer to that. You're going to have to ask her. She's she's HB. That's who she is. And I'm pretty sure part of that was in response to Christina's other question, which is, are aliens real? Now, I know what Christina was going for with this, but she actually misspoke the question. The question she wanted to ask was, have aliens ever visited Earth, as in space aliens, which I had a lengthy discussion on on our trip to Tougher Mudder, college station in texas so i'm going to kind of briefly answer her first question and then go to the question i know she really wanted to ask me so the question are aliens real is a pretty big question right i mean there's there are two big uh terms that help describe if the, the possibility of aliens one of them is the fermi paradox named after enrico fermi you can google and research that if you get bored uh it basically talks about the probability of there being aliens out in the universe someplace and the second one, which is actually almost like a subcomponent of that, is the Drake equation. So basically a bunch of scientists sat down and said, or specifically some giant scientist named Drake sat down and was like, here are a bunch of variables that if we have the values of, we can determine the probability if there are aliens in the universe. The problem with the Drake equation is no one knows any of the variables, like what their actual numbers are. So depending on what you plug in for those variables, you know, it's things like, is this, is the... Uh, sun of the star that the planets are circling around is it the right size and the right power output does the planet that's rotating it fall within the habitable zone you know also does the planet essentially rotate right because if it doesn't rotate you're going to get one side that's super hot and one side that's super cold or does it rotate fast enough or does it rotate too fast there's all these variables that come out and then basically estimates the probability the size of the universe and the probability of those of a planet that fits a description similar to Earth. And the answer, again, you you can play with the variables, but some people come out to essentially one, as in Earth is the only one, all the way up to there's 10 million other planets that have the potential for life on them. So if anyone gets bored, they can research that. That's the Fermi paradox again and the Drake equation. I did have to look up the name of the Drake equation because I couldn't remember... Uh, the name of it off the top of my head. I just remember it was an equation. If you're a fan of the rare earth theory, it's that earth is a unique specimen in the entire universe, which when you actually start digging into it, becomes pretty complicated. Like most topics, things seem simple on the surface, but the more you dig in, the kind of the more questions and the more confusion there is. Like I said earlier, earth is within the habitable zone uh, of our size star, the sun, and then, but on top of that, it has we have a couple other things going for us. Besides the 24 rotation, 24 hours uh, to rotate on its axis, we're also 
oriented in the correct direction, right? So if you're rot if you're on your side, again, if you're rotating, it doesn't matter because now the North Pole is going to get all the sun, and the South Pole is always going to be in the cold. So you also need the correct axis of orientation. On top of that, the Earth has large planets on the outside of it, which some people think is protecting us from catastrophic destruction, right? So Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and those other planets that are circling us have a large gravitational pull, so they're going to affect asteroids and other kind of life-ending events that could possibly come to Earth. So that also might make Earth unique. Obviously, I'm not an astrophysicist, or uh, so speaking a little bit out of turn here, but there's it is some pretty interesting stuff if anyone wants to research that. So the question HB meant to ask was, have aliens visited Earth? And this is especially appropriate because the day I'm recording this, September 20th, is the day all those idiots were supposed to storm Area 51, which, if you're familiar with pop culture, supposedly alien spacecraft landed in, crash landed in Roswell and is now being stored at Area 51, which is why all these idiots are wanting to go out there and storm a uh, classified military base where we do experimental stuff. So not the brightest idea. If anyone wants to read a great book on Area 51, there's a book by Annie Jacobson called Area 51. She uses declassified documents from 2000 that were declassified in 2011, all the way back from you know 1950, all the way to um, I think most of the documents they use kind of stop in the 80s or the early 80s, late 70s. But they talk about some of the stuff that was going on out there, which is super interesting, and is backed by again declassified documents and scientific fact. So I think with most conspiracy theories, there is a very small grain of truth in there, and then people just go wildly off the rails. So the conspiracy theory, again, is that aliens crash-landed, brought them to Roswell, crash-landed in Roswell, we brought them to Nevada Area 51, and that's where we were reverse-engineering alien technology and testing alien spacecraft that fly faster than the speed of sound and can do all sorts of crazy stuff. Again, the grain of truth there is that we are, or... When I say we, I mean the U.S. government was reverse engineering technology. They were reverse engineering Russian technology there. So that's where you get that grain of truth. Are they ex test flying experimental aircraft? Also a fact, right? That's where they test flew the U-2 spy plane. That's where they test flew the SR-71 Blackbird, uh, which was previously called the A-12 Oxcart. So a plane that's a plane that flies fast three times the speed of sound, which is insane. doesn't seem it should be feasibly possible. Um, there's also a book by called Skunk Works that talks about the development of the SR-71, which is also completely insane that they can fly a plane that fast and it doesn't just fall apart or melt because of the extreme amount of pressure. Yeah, so I highly encourage you to check out that book. Big problems with aliens visiting Earth. One is there's literally zero evidence. There's absolutely nothing. Two, most of these stories are ridiculous. They're like, oh yeah, the alien flew here, abducted me, and was probing me anally it's like it's like so you're telling me another culture a foreign inter, inter, interstellar culture mastered faster than light technology travel technology and then they haven't figured out the x-ray or this cat scan and they're still anally probing you like it doesn't make any sense and then on top of that i mean just look at the small scale of what we've done we've gone to the moon and when we went to the moon we hu built this huge rocket the saturn V rocket blasted off to the moon put the lunar module and the lunar lander in rotation around the moon, sent down the, the uh, lander, left the lander on the moon, blasted the top part off, reconnected with the module, and then came back to Earth that way. So if you're an alien technology, you'd probably bring like some sort of main supply ship, and then you'd bring some sort of drop ship to land down on Earth. And again, there's literally zero evidence of that anywhere. There also, there's no communication. I mean, you'd communicate with people too, right? You, you'd want to, even if you're coming to colonize them and over overtake them, you would still, at some point, make your presence known. So I also read a book about uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. If you, again, if you follow the conspiracy theories, there's also, quote-unquote, aliens at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And the funny part about that book is they keep using the word aliens uh, to describe you know, what's going on there. When I guarantee if you took that book and did Control-F, so find all the word aliens and replace with the word Russians, the book would not only make just as much sense, but it would make a lot more sense. So um, 
yeah, have aliens visited Earth? Absolutely not. Zero evidence. And I think there's, um, and if they had visited Earth, I feel like the military would want to advertise that, right? If you, if the aliens came to Earth, you'd want to be like, yeah, aliens are here. We need more. We need to increase defense spending. Let's let's build some sort of super weapon to protect us against the aliens, and then you jack up defense spending even more, and you know, build the military, build the technology, all that good stuff. So yeah, none of it adds up. People are crazy. I don't know what to tell you. The one guy who started a lot of this conspiracy stuff, a guy named Bob Lazar, I think he has actually a documentary on him on Netflix or Amazon Prime, I can't remember which one, also been completely discredited multiple times, right? Like, I think at one point he got arrested for running a brothel. He says he went to his, I think it was MIT, and there's literally no record of going him going there. His classmates don't remember him, or the people who, sit, who would have been there at the same time, essentially, don't remember him. So, essentially, it's people trying to make a quick buck and get their name out there, which apparently works because if you follow that stuff, everyone knows who Bob Lazar is now. You know, for an alien culture to travel to Earth, you have to either move faster than light speed or have an extreme uh, lifespan that be- is beyond our capability or understanding. Um, you still have to travel close to light speed. A problem with Several problems with that is, one, to accelerate the light, light speed safely, you have to accelerate slowly, but also means you have to decelerate slowly um, because otherwise it's like your car hitting a brick wall, right? Like the sudden stop will kill you. So you can either travel via light speed, which a lot of people think is theoretically impossible, or you have to bend space time. So if you've seen the movie Event Horizon, essentially they take two points that are separated in space and they fold space time. So that point becomes the same point and then they unfold space. So so essentially you move to a different place. The best example is you take a piece of paper, put two points on it, and you make that one point, those two points, the same point, and then unfold the piece of paper. So, which, if you see the movie Event Horizon, it, it does not go well um, as far as what the journey in between looks like. But yeah, aliens, spaceships, all that fun stuff. Again, like Christina has pointed out by asking this question, I'm a huge nerd, and I like, I do actually like talking about this stuff. So if anyone wants to go offline and randomly at a race or something and chat about aliens visiting Earth, I'm, I'm open to hear your, your hypotheses and suggestions. I think that's about it. I think I've run my mouth long enough. I hope you enjoyed this episode. A lot of randomness. Hopefully some good tips in there. Make sure you head over to Strength and Speed website, teamstrengthspeed.com. Got our books on sale there. Got the Bleg Mitts, which we're running out of pairs. So you want to pick those up before World's Toughest Mutter. And I hope to see everyone on some races this year. Enjoy your time. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you later. <laughs>